all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return, the nicest one I've ever seen. Okay, folks, but remember your manners, no stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Stephen Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven, who will be a person proving Archimedes' point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. We live in a world awash with data. Collecting data has never been easier. Increasingly, using that information to support tax policies that promote opportunity presents the real challenge. Fortunately, people like today's tax maven, John Friedman, can help. I'm Stephen Dean, the faculty director of the Graduate Tax Program at NYU Law, and I'm here today with John Friedman, uh, professor of economics and international and political affairs at Brown. Uh, thank you for coming in today, John. It's great to be here. So you do just a ton of very interesting work, uh, and you do it in a way that uh, not a lot of lawyers would be able to, uh, maybe none. Um, you do it in a very technically sophisticated way, uh, but what you do that's so great for uh, people who are not math whizzes uh, is you put it together in a way that's very accessible. Um, and I really enjoyed looking at uh, the Opportunity Atlas. Uh, you and uh, some collaborators put together with the U.S. Census Bureau. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So the Opportunity Atlas is our attempt to understand how neighborhoods help shape upward mobility. And to do that, what we did is put together an enormous data set that allows us to both see children where they are growing up and in the families in which they are growing up 25, 30 years ago, and then measure their actual outcomes when they are now adults and uh, potentially in the labor force today. And so what that allows us to do is to calculate for literally every census tract in the country and within many census tracts for different groups of children, say uh, boys and girls, we can ask uh, what are the average outcomes, say, for children growing up in poor families. What that allows us to do is show how upward mobility varies really sharply, not just across the country from state to state, but oftentimes from neighborhood to neighborhood in a city where literally crossing the street can uh, make a difference. And so just to give you a concrete example from here in New York, there is a neighborhood called Brownsville in uh, Brooklyn where uh, it's a, a minority, uh, very high minority share neighborhood. And in Brownsville, uh, outcomes are not that great. So for instance, the average child growing up in a poor black family from Brownsville earns only $17,000 uh, when they get into their 30s. If you go across the street, uh, it's a neighborhood called the Nehemiah Houses, which were built in an open lot in uh, the 1980s. Kids growing up in uh, essentially the same families there, uh, poor black families, many of whom literally moved across the street when they built the Nehemiah Houses in the 1980s. Kids from those uh, neighborhoods uh, grew up to earn 50% more than kids who were coming from just across the street in Brownsville. And I think that this is so important because it allows us to understand upward mobility and opportunity, not as something that is incredibly vague and just out there and hard to understand, but this gives us a very concrete 
example, and there are you know literally thousands more in the country, of in the same city, same demographics, two very, very different outcomes, so that we can understand in an incredibly local context what are the factors that lead to upward mobility and what are the factors that restrain it. And so this is a lot of what uh, lawyers and certainly law professors uh, care about, uh, all of these kinds of questions. But what's so fascinating about the work you've done is you have all the answers. I, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit scared. I want scared. to be very humble about saying that we have all the answers. Well, no, this but... is what I want to say. But you have, you've created the tools to find all the answers. And, it, you, know, it's, uh, you know, it's like on Jeopardy, right? You just need to figure out what the question is, right? <laughs> so you, you have all the answers there, but it's just a question of coming up with the right questions. And is that, is that maybe the big challenge for, for you when you do this work or what you really want people to do with what you've done? So I think of what we're doing as laying the groundwork on which people can layer on lots of tools, quantitative and qualitative, to try to figure out exactly what's going on and exactly what the policies can be. So to give you an example, people have been thinking about these issues and what helps or hurts upward mobility for a long time. It's not like we're the first person, uh, we're the first people to come along to that. But I think that by highlighting such sharp differences, uh, first of all, I think it rules out a bunch of very common explanations, right? So it's not about the local labor market, the fact that there are more jobs available in one place or another, uh, right? Because these two neighborhoods are literally next to each other in New York. It's uh, not entirely about race because these are two kind of demographically equivalent families. Uh, now, to be clear, if you think about national differences, race does play a very important factor, and I, I don't want to diminish that, but you can kind of place exactly in context kind of what race is doing and what race is not doing in a, in a way uh, using these data that I think is just a little bit um, more comprehensive and, and clearer than you would get if you were not using data like this. And so then it allows you to uh, ask questions that you wouldn't have known to ask before, like why is it that... Uh, you know, children growing up in the Nehemiah houses uh, end up much less likely to be incarcerated and much more likely to be employed and have a higher wage job than children who grow up across the street. And uh, for sure, we don't have all the answers there. But when you start to look in detail in these places, the common thread that emerges is all about uh, community. It's not so much uh, a statement of what's going on in individual households, but more about how each child in each household is situated in the community. So let me give you an example of that. One of the characteristics of neighborhoods that is most strongly associated with higher upward mobility is the share of two-parent families. Now, when people first hear that, their response is often, well, of course we knew that children growing up in two-parent families do better than children growing up in single-parent families. And that's, of course, true. But that's actually not what this fact is about. This fact is not about whether you yourself grew up in a two-parent family. It's about whether all the other families around you are two-parent families. That's actually what correlates much more highly with my outcomes. Uh, and so I think it's, it's just that subtle shift in how you think about that, where it's now not just about what's going on very locally to me, but, but how am I fitting in this community? And there, and there are a lot of other examples like that where I think uh, it really, to me, points towards the role of mentorship and uh, role models and uh, not just uh, the 
explicit opportunities that we give these children, but also what is implicit and, and what we lead them to believe in themselves. John Friedman's incredibly granular approach to examining information challenges a lot of what we think we understand about the world, from thinking about why neighbors might or might not enjoy the same prospects, to helping higher education do a better job providing students with more opportunity, Friedman shows that a careful review of data can make us question our assumptions. And I think the reason why they're related comes back to this focus on how children are situated within the community. So we've talked about the importance of one's neighborhood community when you're growing up, but we do not have groups of people that sit around and think very carefully about which applications of children to live in which neighborhoods are you going to accept or reject, right? That's just not something we do. Um, but we do do that for colleges. And so I think part of the reason why at the end we, uh, of this analysis, we conclude that college could really be a really major lever to increase upward mobility. It's not just about the education per se and the acquiring of skills that will then lead to higher wages but it's about a set of policies where we have for many years thought really intentionally about the communities that we are creating, not just on the campus-wide level about, well, how many students from background X or Y are we going to have? But if you then go ask uh, you know, deans or people who really focus on this at some of these campuses, they really think a lot about how can we make sure that students from less traditional backgrounds uh, whatever it may be, feel really at home and part of not only a community of people who are much closer to them, part of a, the broader community, how can we really make that an important piece of their campus experience? And so uh, you know, coming then back to some of the analysis we've done, I think one of the facts that's emerged from this, which is, I think, uh, you know, a really troubling way to think about how income segregation works across higher education, is that on average colleges are just as income segregated as the neighborhoods that poor children are coming from. So, I mean, just to be very precise, if you take a child from a poor family, ask how many peers in their neighborhood also come from poor families, and then ask how many peers in their college come from poor families, it's basically the same thing. And at least when I started this, you might have thought that uh, there would be more income mixing at colleges, given that the American higher educational system is really quite focused on sorting people, uh, you know, based on uh, different backgrounds, but, uh, but there's really not. And so I think that if community is so important, and if we're basically replicating these communities that the kids are coming from in many cases when they go to college, I think that starts to give a sense of why we don't think there's as much being done as there could be done in the higher education space to really uh, help increase upward mobility. Interesting. Are there specific uh, measures that could be taken to address that uh, at the college level, do you think? Or, or is it just something that requires really going back to the drawing board and rethinking how we're doing it? So I think that uh, there's some very important measures that, that could be taken. And you want to break down impacts of each college on upward mobility into two of different pieces. There's the uh, part that we call access, which is just how many students or what fraction of your student body are coming from low-income families to start with. And then what we call the success part of it, which is once those students are on campus, how well do they do in the long term? A college's contribution to upward mobility 
is basically the combination of those two things. And if you're doing it mathematically, it's literally the product of those two things. And you can think about that, you know, the first thing is kind of the quantity of students that you're operating on. And then the second thing is kind of how much of a leg up per student are you giving? And so you combine those two and you, you have some sense of uh, what colleges are doing for upward mobility. And what's really remarkable is that you might think these two things trade off in some kind of ironclad way across schools. Uh, there are obviously some very selective schools in this country that have very good outcomes, but have very few students on campus from poor backgrounds. There are other schools like community colleges that kind of go the other way. What we found most striking in our data is that there were schools that showed examples of breaking this trade-off. So for instance, if you, uh, one school I'd like to point out is uh, this local here is uh, SUNY Stony Brook. SUNY Stony Brook has about a sixth of its uh, student body from the poorest 20% of families. And so if you think about that, like 20% would be a completely equal representation relative to the population benchmark, yet this is a very selective place to go to school. 16% is incredibly high. Uh, the average Ivy League school has about four to 5% of its students from such backgrounds. And even a place like UC Berkeley only has about 9% of kids from this background. So it's actually like way more than most community colleges have, yet it's a very selective research institution. And yet, with this incredibly diverse group of students, it has outcomes which are nearly as good for those low-income students as those who go to Columbia or UC Berkeley or some of these other um, kind of very traditionally elite schools. And so just as with neighborhoods, I think these data highlight places like SUNY Stony Brook where we can say, well, something must be going right there. Probably many things are going right there. They seem to be very, very good at attracting a set of uh, highly qualified students from diverse backgrounds. They also seem to be very good at taking these students from diverse backgrounds and making sure that they do very well uh, while they're there and in the long term. And uh, we don't have all the answers, but I think knowing where to look for the answers is an incredibly important first step. John's secret is surprisingly simple. He, like other researchers, have learned not to reinvent the wheel. Repurposing data that already exists allows scholars to work smarter, not harder. Um, a lot of the best data that we have in this country on students' outcomes, student backgrounds, and even where you go to college is collected as part of the tax system. And uh, we've now been working under various different um, programs and contracts, first with the IRS and uh, more recently with the Census Bureau to try to harness all of these data in accordance with the various legal uses of it to try to learn more about these uh, various uh, policies and, and issues that we care about. This is part of a much broader movement in economics and quantitative social science to use so-called administrative data sets. And I think the easiest example there is to think about uh, the alternative, which is a survey. So traditionally, we went out and we randomly sampled 1,000 or 2,000 students and we interviewed them. Uh, and then you'd follow up a few years later and interview some more, uh, interview them again, but inevitably you lose a bunch of students or they tell you something and it's not quite right. Um, and you do that over time and it just becomes very, very difficult to study these long-term questions. If you have a data set that's collected for the purpose of some administrative program, whether it's uh, the IRS data for the tax system, whether they are school administrative records for the purpose of understanding who's in school and who's acquired what uh, different credential to, to move on, 
these data sets are maintained with much higher fidelity because the data it's like really matters, uh, say what your income is or whether you've gotten a particular grade or you're attending school. And they also tend to cover much broader swaths of the population because the cost of maintaining those data sets is spread over this much larger program as opposed to being a dedicated cost of research. An example that I'd like to give people of the power of these data sets, the very first uh, paper we wrote looked at the long-term follow-up of a program called Project Star in Tennessee that randomly assigned students uh, in kindergarten in 1985 between large and small classrooms. There's a massive literature studying the effect of that on test scores and on other things. We wanted to know what did it do in the long term for whether children went to college and whether they were earning wages uh, once they got out into the labor force. There were about 10,000 students as part of this program. If you look in the original data set, which was a survey data set, of those 10,000 students who started, they were able to follow about 9,000 of them until the end of kindergarten, the end of that first year, and, and study how they did on a variety of tests. And then it kind of continues to fade off a little bit as you get to first, second, third, fourth grade, et cetera. We were able to find a larger fraction of students in the tax data at age 25 than that original study had at the end of that very first year. And it just kind of demonstrates the power of this new empirical approach that's now being used in, I think, really every empirical field, education and health, in industrial organization, studying firms, in tax policy. I think it's just really uh, increased our tools to understand uh, what's going on um, tremendously. It turns out that relying on data generated by the IRS can tell us a lot about the different paths neighbors take in the world and whether colleges are delivering on the opportunity they promise to students. Professor Friedman used those same strategies to reveal hidden truths about the tax law itself, including the earned income tax credit, one of the most important pieces of the social safety net. It turns out that the same advantages that can lead some neighbors to do better than others can help taxpayers navigate the complex world of tax credits. The earned income tax credit, you can kind of split into two different pieces. So the first and most obvious piece is that if you are in a certain broad range of the income distribution, you get a sizable check from the government at the end of the year. And that is going to control whether people want to work in that part of the income distribution or not. And whether you understand exactly the formula that determines how much you're going to get if you earn $10,000 or $12,000 is less important from the fact that you just know that wherever you are in that range, you're going to get a big check compared to if you were not earning anything. And so because of this, our sense is that people have a pretty good understanding of that aspect of the EITC. And then a large number of papers over time have shown that this incentive pulls more people into the labor force. What people have had a harder time showing is this aspect that people really like, which is that instead of just um, giving that big payment to people uh, if they're not really earning that much, it actually incentivizes work by essentially giving workers an extra 40 cents for every dollar that they earn up to uh, you know, ten dollars or $12,000, where the idea is that even if you're already in the labor force, it's going to help you, encourage you to work a little bit more. Uh, and then, of course, on the other side, they tax that money back away from you, and we worry there's a little bit of a disincentive effect for slightly higher earners who, who maybe are in uh, kind of the $25,000, uh, $30,000 range. Those incentives are quite a bit more subtle. And I think uh, both for that reason and uh, for some other uh, data issues, 
it's been very difficult for the literature to demonstrate uh, the effects that this particular structure of the EATC that I think theoretically has a lot of these very nice features, it's been very difficult to demonstrate whether that's actually doing what we think it's doing or, or whether this is uh, you know, more an example of policy design that's uh, too clever by half. So what we realized when we looked at this is that there were some pretty large differences across space in the extent to which people seem to understand the exact structure of the EITC. Uh, you can measure that in a number of different ways, but the thing that really convinced us that it was about information was by looking at what happens when people move from one place to another. When you move from a high information place to a low information place, nothing happens because you, know, you don't forget if you've already understood the ATC, or at least you don't forget immediately. Whereas if you move from a low information place to a high information place, we see big increases in your responsiveness to the particular incentives that are in the ATC. And so if you model it this way, you can then pick out these patterns across space where on average people aren't that responsive, but that's because in some places they appear on average kind of essentially unaware of the exact incentives at any given income level. And in other places, they're really quite aware and quite responsive. And then one can ask, what are the characteristics of places that seem to have this very high degree of knowledge? And it's exactly what you said. It's that uh, there are not just uh, a lot of people who are EATC eligible, um, but who are EATC eligible in a kind of very compact space. So it's basically like the density of EATC eligible people uh, really seem to predict communities where people know much, much more and are, as a result, much more responsive um, to the ATC. And I think you can really see that intuitively where, you know, if you and many other people in your local community are all benefiting from this program, it makes more sense that collectively you would kind of figure out a little bit more about its incentives where, you know, if you live in a rural area, there are not that many people to start with. Uh, there are not as many people, even among the people who are there, who are eligible for this program. There's just less experience out there on exactly what to do. And, uh, you know, I study taxes in academic and I still find myself confused by a lot of features of the tax system. I think it's not crazy to think that, um, you know, people who are uh, seeing this without a lot of other experience in the community might not exactly understand the details of everything that's going on. Uh, and so, so that's, I think, what you described is exactly right about the ATC. So, uh, Professor Friedman, uh, you have clearly know many things, uh, and uh, you've been very generous with uh, answering uh, my questions in a, in a way that's really just uh, uh, just exciting. I want to come and be a student in your class. Um, but uh, I'm going to now ask you a question that you really may not know the answer to, and, and that's fine. But if you get it right, the stakes are quite high. You get to go home with this very nice purple NYU Law Graduate Tax Program pencil. Some high stakes. All right. So let's see. Let's 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 do this. All right. Let's do this. All right. So um, in 2013, uh, the Economist, uh, and I'm quoting from an article, and I'll tell you which article in a minute. It says the Economist, hardly a bastion of tax and spend liberalism, published an editorial calling for the greater use of the blank tax. I'm, I'm going to ask you what tax it is. Uh, and the magazine noted uh, that while economists tend to strongly favor increased reliance on this tax, uh, owing to its attractive economic properties, uh, there is a widespread popular and hence political resistance to their increased use stemming in part from their transparency 
and relatively limited scope for tax avoidance and evasion. That's the economist's take on it. Um, uh, so uh, my question to you is, um, is this uh, A, the property tax, B, financial transaction taxes, or C, cash flow consumption taxes? So the answer that I had in mind before you gave me those uh, specific options was going to be the value-added tax. So I'm going to go for C as kind of a pretty similar economic option. So, and this is something, uh, so I'm sorry, you will not be going with this pencil. Uh, so you're going to have to find another kind of pencil to use. Property tax. And again, this is just what the economist is saying. So I, I, I defer to you on whether they're accurately reflecting uh, what, um, uh, what economists actually think about it. And that's not certainly the view that I would have had of it um, uh, in the abstract. But this is an article written by uh, Darren Chansky, uh, Revitalizing Local Political Economy Through Modernizing the Property Tax. Uh, it was published in uh, the NYU Tax Law Review in 2014. Um, and uh, so, you know, it seems that some economists out there, uh, yes, and if I'd included value-added tax on there, uh, that would have been... Uh, it's close enough. It's basically a cash-based consumption tax. Okay. Um, but anyway, so thank you very much. Uh, I'm sorry you didn't get the purple pencil. I'm uh, deeply devastated. But I but I appreciate your patience and um, your, your playing along with us. Thank Thanks you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, and I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Greg Addison, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. And thank you, Rachel Burns. The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web. Visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, both in person and online, both for lawyers and non-lawyers. Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. Today's student quote from The Economist Hajun Chang's 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism came from Esther from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Once you realize that trickle-down economics does not work, you will see the excessive tax cuts for the rich as what they are, a simple upward redistribution of income, rather than a way to make all of us richer, as we were told. Please email us at info at taxmavenpodcast.com if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, please email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in.